This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. But it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years. On Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Welcome, everyone, uh, to The Cable. Also, happy Halloween. It's October 31st. We're only also four hours away from each other. We're just past five in the U.S., but just past one here in the U.S. This is very exciting. Guy and I are four hours close. We're, we're one hour closer to each other. This is a very unique situation. All right, let's get you caught up on markets here. Uh, European equities just closed up uh, just about half an hour ago, uh, and they closed up by about one-tenth of one percent. Footsie 100 up six-tenths of one percent. The CAC pretty much flat. Uh, the IBEX up by five-tenths of one percent. There is a broad bond underperformance here. Uh, yields higher, particularly over in Italy, up by almost 13 basis points. You had really high inflation and really bad GDP. You got high inflation, low growth. That's not a great scenario when it comes to the ECB. And Guy, I feel like that just sets us up for the whole week. High inflation, weak growth, and then you got the Fed on Wednesday. So you've got the Fed on Wednesday, you've got the Bank of England on Thursday, you've got payrolls on Friday. Um, we asked the question a little bit earlier on, on TV, will the Fed spook the market? Well, let's just kind of widen the lens a little bit. Will any of those three events spook the market? Um, the expectation is the BOE is going to deliver 75 basis points. Um, I guess you could have an upside surprise there from a risk asset point of view where, where the bank only goes 50 basis points. But I do wonder whether actually the biggest shock this week could come from payrolls. The labour market is really critical at the moment and is holding up surprisingly well in the US right now. Yes. I think the question is, how long does that continue? And more importantly, is that a good or is that a bad thing? I mean, at some point, you're going to... I think it was Eric Nielsen wrote about this from Unicredit over the weekend, that you have to, at some point, incentivize strong companies to stop hiring people. That is quite a dilemma. Let me say that again. Strong companies with solid profits and good margins have to stop hiring people. How do you do that without tipping everything into a recession? It's a massive problem. Um, and, and in some ways, this is the differentiator between what is happening in the States and what is happening uh, over in Europe as well. The whole yeah. sort of labour market story has not been the real challenge over here in Europe. It's been a supply side problem. It's been an energy problem, but it's more broadly just been a supply side problem. Uh, bottlenecks have been a huge problem for industry. Uh, and that has caused much of the inflation we've seen. But today's numbers, Alex, out of the Eurozone, I know we had a clue at the back end of last week, particularly with the Italian, the German and the French data, that we knew that the data are are going to be coming through strong. But today we got kind of confirmation of that. So consumer prices, the harmonised number comes through at 10.7%. That's the October number. Now, economists, and we all love economists, um, expected 10.3. Now, the problem is that the data keep beating on the upside. I.e. the number continues to be higher and higher and higher. And and it just means that the bank it just means that the ECB has not got a handle on this, mm-hmm. and this is going to mean ultimately that the ECB is going to have to continue going, which is not what Christine Lagarde was talking about when she was uh, in her press conference last week. Yeah, and ten point seven is closer to eleven than ten point three is closer to ten. I'm just saying, like 
those things make a difference. That's, that's I appreciate it's rounding. <laughs> it's a true fact. But those things, it's like psychologically, we're looking now at 11 versus 10. And that to me feels also like a big difference. And not to mention that you had services inflation also moving higher. Only by one tenth of 1%, yeah. but still, you know, we don't want to see that happening. And we're into the wage round in, in Europe as well. Yeah. Yeah, Mattel's looking for 8%. Um, the metal bashers are, are wanting a big pay rise. And and it's going to be really interesting to see whether they get it. Christine Lagarde has taken um, a lot over the last 24 hours of saying that inflation came out of nowhere. I'm not entirely sure that's true. I, I say that we love economists. We don't love all economists, but we definitely love Simon Kennedy, uh, who joins us now. <laughs> um, he is He is one of our more senior economists. Let's just put it that way here at Bloomberg. Um, you mocked economist and also kind of called him old all at the same time. Simon, good to see you. Good to see you. How are you guys? Uh, we're good. I didn't call you old. I'm pretty certain see, I didn't call you old. Senior? I mean, no, I don't mean senior as in as in senior citizen. Oh, okay. I mean Veteran, senior right? as, in, as in rank, as in he is, he is towards the top end uh, of the hierarchy of economists here at Bloomberg. Not, yeah. Anyway, Simon, uh, to park that for one minute. Let, let's talk a little bit about Eurozone inflation and why economists keep underestimating it. Why is that? I think it's a, it's a lesson of last year. Is that, yeah, everyone thought it would be transitory, it would fade away, um, almost because that's how business cycles worked, and it, and it hasn't. And so, um, and there have been a variety of new forces. Obviously, the uh, the, the war in um, uh, Ukraine has, uh, has, uh, has driven up prices. The supply chains haven't exactly um, uh, raced back to recovery. So there's all these forces, and it's uh, it's kind of a, a scramble to keep up, really. Uh, here's the question: uh, When do we hit the peak? I say that because I feel like we've been asking this question for six months. Um, I think it's uh, it's it's yeah it's going to be a, a time uh, into the new year. It's always a few months away, right? But right. Um, obviously in the UK they're looking at twelve percent at some point in about March or April. But again, it's uh, uh, just it's always just out of reach. Simon Christine Lagarde has taken um, a few hits today. She went on television and talked about this idea that this inflation came out of nowhere. Is that credible? No, it's an argument that has to be uh, to, to be made if, you, if you're in her position. I think there is a good deal of, of, of blaming Putin here, that uh, rightly and wrongly, that the, uh, the Ukraine war did give a fresh kick up to the inflation. Uh, and perhaps in, if you just look at the chart, you might think it was a straight, uh, just a straight climb from last year, and that uh, uh, it's when you add the war that you realise that actually yeah, the war took over from the kind of the post-pandemic boom in, yeah. in inflation to some extent. But no, I don't. I think there's lots of people out there, Larry Summers. And among them who would say that they saw this coming and uh, it's slightly disingenuous to, uh, to, to argue otherwise. Um, so how do we then trust what they say about the wage price spiral that we're not seeing one yet, yet services inflation keeps rising? And I wonder in a couple months, are we going to be hearing from central bankers in Europe like, oh, right, we really didn't see this wage price spiral thing happening? Um, yeah, again, the, the argument would be, or the expectation would be, and some, to some extent, as we wrote about at the weekend, um, uh, these, uh, these tight labor markets um, uh, are, you know, are going to generate uh, inflation of, of wages, and, uh, and therefore that drives up the prices again as companies look to adapt. Uh, we saw some fairly good news last week in the U.S. on the employment cost index. You know, it wasn't keeping up with the pace of inflation, but wages are going up, and that's yeah. for central banks. It's a, it's an odd, it's a tricky position to be in, in that you know no one would wish people to lose work, but at the same time they don't want the labour markets to go uh, to be too strong. 
So there's this whole argument that central banks are beginning to back off. It uh, started in Australia, then you had Canada, then there was Singapore in between. And in some ways, the ECB last week sounded a little bit more dovish than maybe some would have anticipated. Is there a danger that some of these central banks are changing the message too early? I, if I look at the Australian example, they, they downshifted to 25 basis points uh, hikes, and then the next piece of inflation data was super strong. The, the, the ECB comes out and says, we're going to take this meeting by meeting. They sound a little bit more dovish. Certainly that is the consensus in, in the markets. And the next piece of data we see is super strong. Is there a danger that, that central banks worry too much about what is happening with the economy, i.e. The, the, the economic slowdown that we're seeing, and maybe some of the political forces that they're also being, being presented with as well, and, and inflation just remains too elevated? And ultimately, like Mr. Burns, they have to come back. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's you know you might see it in the next twenty four hours. Australia, for example, Australia yeah. slowed back. It might speed up tomorrow. It's going to be a huge communications challenge, uh, and then into the Fed on Wednesday, you have that that challenge there of uh, of uh, Jerome Powell. You know, he probably does want to signal something into December, slow down into December. But if markets come away declaring victory over inflation, then he's got a problem. So it's uh, this pivoting. You know, in the old days, pivoting would be pivoting to a stop. Uh, the pivot is much shallower now. It's pivoting to a. a to a smaller rate, yeah, downshift. But then if you have to speed up again, then there's a bit of a problem. But it feels like there's there are nuances in all the different central banks because it feels like for the Fed, you could consistently see a higher terminal rate and just a slower pace of, of getting there. Versus the ECB, it feels like the terminal rate in some ways won't be moving higher and also the pace will be slowing. Yeah, absolutely. And the, 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 this is the whole problem for the central banks, really, is that they've all got this, um, uh, you know, toss up really between uh, uh, what to be focusing on. They've obviously got in trouble last year for not um, doing, um, uh, not cracking down on inflation. They've scrambled to catch up there. And now they're into being asked why the uh, you know, why hiring and is going to be weak, why recession is a possibility. So they're kind of uh, chasing their own tails, really. How big a risk is there that the Bank of England does fifty on Thursday? Um, versus seventy-five. Uh, seventy-five, yeah. Uh, that, you'd be you'd be again into a communications challenge. I think. I think they're pretty much. Uh, um, obviously, they have deniability, but they've also been. You know, this time last year or so, they were criticised for um, for not uh, for not acting sooner. They were. I think there was some signal of, uh, this time last year they were going to hike. They didn't. They waited to December, then they hiked again ahead of most central banks, but still not perhaps quickly enough. So I think the market would be quite surprised if uh, if they didn't go by. Uh, 75 this week. Although, admittedly, uh, uh, Ben Broadbent very recently yeah. just saying uh, that the market uh, is perhaps uh, not necessarily accurate. But again, that's perhaps the terminal rate, not what they do this week. Okay. I think it would be quite a surprise, although they are they will lack the fiscal data that uh, uh, they might have hoped to have. Well, precisely. That's, so I'm just going to, there's, there's a couple of things sort of in that. One of which is the fiscal story could be a lot tighter and they don't know the answer to that yet. So would it be better to err on the side of caution or maybe erring on the side of caution is, is hitting inflation where it hurts? The, the other factor as well is market pricing is all over the place at the moment. Given the fact that they use market pricing so, so, so much in their own calculations, how on earth do they actually really know what's going on? Yeah, again, they they don't know what's going on to some extent. They're in a bit of a fog of war, but they know that inflation is up, so you're going to hit inflation. That's probably what you're going to see this week. Where do we think 
the risk lies, though, and we're getting from the government. Is that what you meant by plausible deniability, that they don't know what the government's going to do in terms of their budget so they can say we're only going 50 because we don't know? How real is that risk uh, from Rishi Sunak? Um, well, they would like the information. The, the, the Bank of England, um, uh, they, they work on policy, to actually announce policy, so they can't riff on Thursday and say, well, we think, we've read in the newspapers that um, the government might do this, so we're taking that into account. So it does reduce their, you know, again, it's a bit, a bit of a fog of uh, fog of war, really. They don't have the, they, they thought it was going to be today. It's not going to be today for you know, reasons the government have given, uh, but that does deprive the bank of, of, of information. But, you know, again, what they do know is inflation's up, and so they're going to want to hit that. Mm. Uh, we, uh, presumably we're entering the most difficult phase now for these central banks like raising rates aggressively front loading in some ways feels like a relatively straightforward exercise finessing it to try and work out with policy lags what 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 rate rises and qt etc are doing at the kind of point at which we're getting to the top of the cycle must be the most difficult bit like, is this the point where you could get a policy mistake yeah, this is, and, and you know, it does. They were late to the party. They were late to raise interest rates or late to tighten monetary policy. But actually, when they queued, clued into that, that was, they did it quite aggressively. And the Fed, the Fed, if the Fed hikes by seventy-five basis points this time, it'll be the fourth successive move. Yeah. Uh, and so, but they've now got it into restrictive territory. So now they're kind of got to feel their way a little. Um, and that's that's where the policy mistake error is. Yeah, this isn't. This is very. They don't know. You know, um, uh, interest rates work with a lag, so it could be eighteen months before they know. So they're acting now um, to affect an economy in a, in yeah, having started the hiking earlier this year. That it's going to end, start affecting the economy or hitting the economy in, in towards the end of next year now. So now, for every every hike now, it's a different year. I guess Potentially I'll, more more yeah. unemployed, um, or yeah. they don't they don't hike, and then they're stuck with inflation above their target in a year's time, which again is is going to be a, a huge issue for them. Nightmare. Just I mean, it just feels like it's honestly such a nightmare. And and I also wonder too, and this is what we are also kind of getting at with our question of the day is just what's priced into markets and then where the risk actually is. Like if we're already on board with the front loading and higher terminal rate, that's one thing. But what if we have the BOE do fifty? What if we have a seventy five basis point hike from the Fed, but they talk softer language like Christine Lagarde did, you know, or, or, and what kind of reversal we're going to wind up seeing in the market and the shakeout of positions. And I'm just wondering, and I, and I know you're the economic guy, Simon, but I'm just wondering that sort of dynamic headed into Wednesday. Well, you've seen a little bit of that in July. Um, uh, they hiked by 75 basis points. Everyone thought that's hawkish. And then um, Jay Powell had his press conference and came away with, you know, he talked about the neutral rate and, and reaching that and, and various other issues. And, and the markets decided, oh, he must be upbeat. So we'll, you know, on the inflation fight, so it went markets, which is, again, what he didn't want to do. And fast forward to the Jackson Hole conference at the end of the month, and he uh, also the end of August. Um, and yeah, he was very much more hawkish. It was very, very direct, very short to the point speech, which said, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing. Uh, and I think, to be honest, I think he'll probably refer back to that, um, that for him, the inflation fight is, is, the, is the one that's um, uh, occupying his attention. Mr. Kennedy, thank you, sir. We will leave it there. Always appreciate your input. Bloomberg Simon Kennedy on what's happening with these central banks and this difficult economy. I, I, Alex, I think they are in a really tough spot now. Mm-hmm. I think the, mar- the potential for the market to misinterpret is probably higher now than at any point during this cycle. Um, they, they were late. They, they misinterpreted the economic data. Then they tried to catch up. 
But now, as they just try and roll over and go from fifty, from seventy-five to fifty to twenty-five, the, the market has the potential really to misinterpret that and to, and to yep. see it as a pivot. Well, also because let's keep in mind, a consistent fifty basis point hike is still a lot. Yeah. Uh, there was a time where just hiking twenty-five basis points was considered hawkish. So dialing that down from seventy-five to call that dovish would be also strange, similar to the ECB. Yet that exactly how the markets then reacted. All right, coming up, we're going to get more on what's happening with Ukraine and Russia. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. 18 minutes past the hour. You are listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. So wheat prices have jumped globally today. This after over the weekend, Russia suspended the deal guaranteeing safe packet passage, if I get that word out, of ships leaving Ukrainian ports uh, with Ukrainian grain on board. Um, Russia is now warning that these shipments become, quote, much riskier without its participation, though we are seeing ships leaving uh, Ukraine and heading towards Turkey. Uh, The United Nations, Turkey, trying to salvage the deal. We don't exactly know what Russia wants to be able to rejoin uh, this deal, uh, but it would be quite tricky, I would have thought, for Russia, which has managed to heap significant pain on itself. Uh, but were it, I think, to to start sinking civilian shipping um, that was also loaded with grain that is going to feed much of the rest of the world, I think that wouldn't be a particularly good look. Um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about also what is happening uh, in Ukraine at the moment. The significant bombardment continues. Uh, we're also heading into winter, so preparations are, are kind of very much underway for what combat in that environment is going to look like. Bloomberg's Rosalind Matheson joining us now to discuss this. Ros, let's start, first of all, with the, the, the wheat deal, the grain deal. Russia has walked away. Now what? Well, that is the gazillion dollar question, really, because, as you said, Russia has said they're no longer party to this deal, which is expiring either way on November 19, I believe, unless it gets rolled over. Um, and Ukraine and the others are calling their bluff on that. They're saying, OK, right, but we're going to keep grain ships moving out of our ports um, through that corridor down to Turkey to get inspected and go on to countries in Africa and elsewhere, bringing that much needed grain out to the world. And they're saying, well, we'll call your bluff. We'll see what you're going to do. And that dramatically has escalated tensions over those ships because um, it will put some kind of pressure potentially on on Russia to retaliate. Um, We're seeing comments from the UN representative for Russia today saying, you know, grain should not be carried out of there without Russia's wherewithal. Um, And um, they will do sort of whatever they need to um, as a as a result. And in fact, we've seen a sort of slightly unrelated, but Russian uh, forces firing on civilian tugboats carrying a barge with grain in the Mykolaiv area. That's not from the port, but indicating that these that these vessels are perhaps becoming something of a target. Because if Vladimir Putin now lets those ships sail without any interruptions, he's lost his leverage. Mm-hmm. against the world when it comes to grain. Um, equally, if, he, if Russia were to strike uh, a cargo ship carrying grain like that, you can imagine the repercussions from the rest of the world. So they kind yeah. of fenced him in here and it might force him to act. Right. I don't know how much we want that to happen in terms of force it, but putting Vladimir Putin in a corner. Um, aside from that for a moment, if I'm an insurance company or I'm one of the companies that's moving the cargo or I'm a trader that's hedging the stuff that's on the cargo... Am I taking that trade right now? Like, I I can't quite imagine a riskier environment than what you've just laid out for us. 
Well, that is the question because, you know, we are seeing them saying that ships are lined up and they're sailing today and going to continue to do so. But you could see some uh, some shipping companies saying, you know, we're just not going to take the risk because now um, there's a, a greater risk of our own ship becoming a target. How do you ensure our shipments through there? Um, and, that, and that they start themselves. Um, to say, well, you know what, we're not going to send our ships back for another go. So perhaps you do see um, some of that trade dwindle simply because um, the companies that are involved now saying that it's far too risky to continue. In terms of what's happening now elsewhere in, in Ukraine, we're now seeing, and I know there's no confirmation of this, but it appears that the Ukrainians are in some ways taking the fight to the Russians in their own backyard. We, we saw the destruction of the bridge linking Crimea to the rest of Russia. Uh, we're now seeing ships uh, being damaged, hit in Sevastopol. Um, and there is considerable consternation as a result of this in Russia. The, the Russians are responding by hitting the, the Ukrainian infrastructure harder and harder and harder. Is this part, Is this a response to what Ukraine is doing, or is this... Russia basically softening up Ukraine in advance of the winter, which is going to be cold and brutal. Well, it does seem to be a bit of a pattern because each time something has been hit um, around Crimea, um, and of course the most recent one was hitting sort of Russian Navy vessels in the area, you've seen a very swift response from Moscow against Ukraine as a whole. And that's even as Ukraine has um, not actually officially claimed responsibility for any of it or saying that they were behind it. Um, but you've seen sort of a pattern where that's happened and then there's been very big missile strikes across Ukraine, including the capital, Kiev, really targeting, again, infrastructure and energy infrastructure, taking out power and water. We've seen increasingly parts of Kiev without either um, for, for large parts of the day and other cities and towns around Ukraine. And really, as you say, trying to send the message to people of Ukraine, we're going to make your lives even more miserable through winter. If you think it's tough already, try getting through winter when your power's not working for some of the time or you don't have access to water. And the idea that they think they can squeeze Ukrainians to in turn put pressure on their government to perhaps at some point negotiate. But what we're seeing, of course, at the moment is the opposite, is that many Ukrainians are saying, fine, we're, we're happy to take those hits and keep going. Yeah, it feels like the harder you squeeze, the harder they fight at the end of the day. Um, what are the conversations between the Ukraine between Ukraine and the West when it comes to things like grain shipments and that here's something we're doing that could escalate the conflict and make Vladimir Putin feel even more cornered? Are they, are they calling the Western governments and saying, hey, I'm just letting you guys know, or like, can we all work together? Or is this sort of, they're acting first and then the West has to react later? Well, some of these conversations seems to be happening, you know, in concert with the United Nations and Turkey. And Turkey, of course, was a key broker um, in the original grain deal alongside the United Nations. But those conversations are also happening primarily with Russia. And that's Turkey and the UN sort of talking to Russia and say, hey, look, let's think about coming back to this grain deal. Let's think about sort of the bigger picture here for all of us because it's not good for Russia to be seen to be holding the world to ransom in terms of access to crucial grain supplies. That doesn't do its um, image any good in places like mm -hmm. Africa and North Africa and beyond. So those, there's sort of a lot of pressure from Turkey and the UN on Russia uh, to, to change its mind here. It's just a mess. I, I really, thank you for trying to analyze it for us. We really appreciate it. Wonderful analysis, as always. Roz, Roz Matheson uh, joining us from Bloomberg. All right, coming up, this is for you, Guy. Winter is coming.
It is coming, and it could be a lot colder. We'll talk more about the UK weather forecast next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in the UK. It's just past 1.30 here in the US. Just past 5.30 over in the UK. We're closer. I'm four hours. I'm one hour closer to you guys. Don't you feel it? Don't you feel me more in your commute home? Um, that just sounded weird. Okay, let's get to the markets here for U.S. equities. Uh, big tech weighing on stocks. Energy, though, up. Although energy off their highs as we're potentially looking at President Biden and a windfall tax uh, on big oil profit. But nonetheless, I think the debate rages within the uh, U.S. equity community. Can U.S. stocks in general move higher without big tech like a Meta, like a Tesla, like an Amazon? And what would lead it higher? Pretty much only energy. And they're just not that big enough of a weighting yet in the S&P again. So therein lies the rub. You could have positive data, but without big tech, can you really go positive overall? Sell-off in the bond market continues. Uh, the front end is the biggest underperformer there, and the dollar uh, modestly higher on the day as well, headed into the Fed meeting. So let's stay with oil for a moment. Um, currently, Adipec is going on. They get all the top oil executives uh, talking about oil. I'm actually kind of bummed I'm not there. And Manus Crandy sat down with Vidal Group Executive Chairman and Chief Executive Officer Russell Hardy. And they talked about the oil market and they really centered in on demand destruction. The supply side's obviously been constrained a little bit by OPEC. Um, The supply side may well be a little bit constrained by the Russian sanctions in the future. Um, The supply side is is clearly at or close to its uh, max. There's not a huge amount of spare capacity. So that creates a little bit of... uh, supply side tension and, and makes people a little bit worried. But on the flip side, on, on, uh, on product demand, if we were doing this interview in January, uh, I would have told you that we expected demand to be 2 million barrels a day higher now than it actually is. And why is that? That's the war, that's inflation, that's the price, the price impact on consumers, and all of those, uh, and, and of course uh, the Chinese, uh, the Chinese lockdown situation. So, on the on the product side, you do see significantly lower demand, and obviously that's helping keep prices in balance. That was the Vital CEO speaking to Manus Cranny at Adipec in Abu Dhabi, appropriately, a little bit earlier on today. Um, let's stay with the energy theme. Some interesting things have been happening here in Europe over the last few days. Um, this morning, we got a long-term forecast coming through from the Met Office, which suggested, on balance, that there is a slightly greater risk of a colder winter. Now, that's really important if you're a gas trader right now, because you're having to deal with uh, all kinds of strange things happening. The most strange thing that's happening is that it is weirdly warm outside, as a result of which demand for gas right now is relatively low. And as a result of which, we've got all these gas tankers lined up to bring lots of gas LNG into Europe. And in some ways, there's nowhere to go because storage Mm -hmm. is starting to fill up. Is that a a good enough summary, do you think, Alex? I think that's pretty good. Um, Excellent. You got got the weather, you got commodities in there. I like talking about the weather. I think the weather, too much to your annoyance, is actually going to play a critical part in what happens with (laughs) markets. Um, Todd Gillespie joins us uh, to update us. He actually knows what he's talking about, as opposed to me making it up, talking about the weather. Not really a weatherman. Um, Todd, let's talk about let's talk about the Met. Let's start with the Met Office and talk about what is happening with the weather, because at the moment weirdly warm, but the Met Office is now saying 
there is now a slightly greater chance that things could get quite chilly quite quickly. Yeah, so relative, basically relative to you know this point of the year, pre in previous years, we're expecting a colder winter than normal. So it's kind of a you know it's sort of basing basing this off seasonal averages. Remember, we kind of had a very warm winter relatively last year which really helped us through this gas you know through this gas energy crisis um and everyone was sort of hoping you know we've got storage really high right now we've got a good sort of outlook in terms of lng supply potentially but you've got a really tight tight system this winter so the one thing that could really really help europe is to have warm temperatures and as you say we have had that now um and it does actually feel quite strange in fact i was saying to my colleague earlier i actually put my puffer jacket back in uh, the back of my cupboard this morning on the way to work as I was like taking out my shirts because I was like it's not it's just it's not, not cold, cold enough I'd, I'd taken it out like you know I'd started to wear it in chilly days and now I put it back and but it, now it, it, I, I, I got my gloves out this morning but have yet to put them on for my bicycle ride I, lo- I <laughs> love when men are talking about fashion on the show this isn't fashion this is, this is survival <laughs> uh-huh. do you call they are puffer jackets in the states right Alex yeah no, we say, I, I say puffy but that's just you okay. put E on the end of everything. Because yeah, exactly. Mm, and I also okay. just call the coat puffy. Like, oh I got my puffy. Um okay. but to that point, okay, like, but we wanted warm weather. <laughs> we <laughs> I want to see the look on Todd's face right now. Spectacular. I, I'm sure. He doesn't know me well enough to understand the, the beauty no, of me saying. Nobody puffy. knows you well enough. Yeah. Um okay, so we wanted warm weather, we got warm weather, and now the bad thing is warm weather. Um, well, the bad thing right now is the chance of uh, of cold cold weather, but also. But, but, but isn't it that also there's nowhere to put the gas, so then all of a sudden it's going to be harder to store it because there is no storage well, because it's. Warm? I mean, uh, no, I mean, well, I mean, it brings the prices down, right? So today we've had a ten percent drop in European gas prices um, for December. So the market has been pricing in. I mean, the the, the you know. The hope is that these, if these warm weather, if this warm weather continues, then we're going to be paying much less for our energy, um, because the, you know the, the supply demand um, situation will be much much better because our, our demand will be dropping. And we've seen all sorts of forecasts out from Germany recently as well, and I think there's some more on their way showing that you know German consumers have actually been quite good at saving gas. Um, so if this does continue, then as, yep. as people you know people have been feeling pretty positive. But the weird thing is today a forecast like this suddenly comes out and shocks people. And when you're a you know a hedge fund who's invested millions of pounds in uh, into weather forecasts as some of them do, um, you know, and you have the UK Met Office coming out actually you know actually upping the risk slightly. Um, that's you know a lot of people had been quite positive, had sort of been almost resting on their laurels. Some traders that I've been speaking to. Um, and now this has sent a little bit of a shock through through uh, some of the energy traders. I, I what, I'm really curious about that German data. Is that just it being warm, or is that the Germans genuinely not using as much? So I, yeah. it, I, I imagine we're not using it as much either. But I, what I can't differentiate is the Germans are actively telling people not to use gas. Yeah. But we're not. But actually, the weather's probably doing that anyway. Yeah, totally. So it's been a bit of both. So what you normally have is the heating season, which normally starts around bang on this time uh, each year. Um, people talk about a delay in the heating season. And that's essentially what we're seeing right now is, you know, you'd expect around this time of year people to start switching on their, their heating, uh, switching on their gas central heating in countries like the UK and countries like Germany. Um, actually, the weather's enabled them not to do that. Um, but also, as, as you say, Guy, yes, especially in countries like Germany, a lot of this saving has come from mm-hmm. um, government and 
encouragement and this sort of sense of solidarity that that we've been seeing. I mean, yeah. it would be really interesting to me personally, I, you know, as a UK citizen, where our government hasn't really done the same, hasn't really encouraged this. Um, will we will we see those patterns emerge here from a sense of sort of political solidarity, from a financial you know incentive yeah. perspective when it does get colder? We don't have a ton of time, maybe 40 seconds left, Todd. But um, I've also been reading about the fact that most of the uh, gas and storage is owned by utilities and traders. Would they really sell into a down market? Um, yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, they're, they're, when there's demand, yes, because you they, they have to get it, they get it top back up. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure on the technicalities of, of all of these, but there's a lot of competition um, when it comes to selling storage on. Um, some of this does come under government guidance as well. So in Germany, you do have governments that really do step in and make sure they control this mm-hmm. balance. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you need the gas, there's going to be a buyer and someone's going to buy it. So. All right, Todd, thanks a lot. I hope you don't need Puffy for a while. Um, Todd Gillespie joining us uh, from Bloomberg. All right, coming up, we have an exclusive interview uh, with the CEO of Barclays. It's his first one since being in the office for the for the past year. He had some problems. He had a big learning curve, and he talks about that in the next Front Row episode. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Uh, the banking centre absolutely front and centre right now. Uh, as we watch what is happening with the UK economy, we've seen provisioning start to go up. Clearly, the banks are worried. Uh, there, there is going to be a significant economic slowdown. But what exactly is that going to look like? Uh, Barclays' new CEO, uh, CS uh, Venka Krishnan, uh, spoke to uh, Bloomberg's Francine Lacroix on the economy, the housing reaction, um, and what we're seeing in terms of the turmoil that is going on right now. She asked him what his worst-case scenario was. I think the UK economy has had a lot of support during COVID. And obviously, there are, you know, the UK has been growing more slowly than it should. Uh, but the financial services industry, which is a large part of the UK, is very competitive. But it's not the only one. Health sciences, even technology and parts of technology, fintech, are very, very bright stars in the UK. So the UK has a lot going for it. And I don't think you will see that kind of environment. I think what, what, what I'm hoping you see is what people will call a soft landing and a shallow recession, helped by the initial conditions. Uh, and, and so what you might see is an increase in, in unemployment. You might see some credit weakness among, among customers, but it won't be so bad that you see distress in society. However, it has to be managed carefully, and it has to be managed aggressively with a balancing of the budget, and that's what the Prime Minister has said in the last couple of days. Are you expecting a housing crash? I doubt it. Talk to me a little bit about the last six weeks. So you, you mentioned the guilt. I mean, was there a moment where you were in the office thinking, like, I, you know, as Barclays, you're one of, of course, the players in selling and buying guilds with the margin calls coming in and saying, like, I don't know what happens in the next two hours. So uh, first of all, I think that uh, I think the, 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 the volatility was managed extremely well by the very effective, targeted and time bound actions of the Bank of England. So I think buying gilts, buying inflation-linked gilts, and then the repo facility that they put in working with the banking system uh, all helped ease the pressure in the crisis. And, you know, you've got 10-year gilt yields now back below where they were um, at the the day of the mini-budget on the 23rd of September. As for us, I mean, we are large in the the gilts market. Um, What was important for us, as we saw it, was this was not a solvency issue at all for the pension system. It was a liquidity issue. 
and it was a liquidity issue because what was a very important feature of the UK pension system, which by the way I think yes. is a good feature of the pension system, which is a matching of assets and liabilities, which employed leverage, created a liquidity problem. So a liquidity problem had to be managed. And the liquidity problem was managed by the government intervention or the mm -hmm. Bank of England intervention, the repo facility which allows people to borrow against assets rather than sell them, and by slowly releasing the pressure. And, you know, so far so good. Do, do you think that, that will change, actually, regulations surrounding pensions in the UK? So uh, I don't know the answer, but I think what is important is that the UK pension system in aggregate is very well funded. It's about 125-130% funded ratio, which is extraordinarily good, which gives it a good starting point from which to manage to a less leveraged future. Is liquidity your, the biggest concern for banks right now? I mean, we're again hearing you know, the U.S. Treasury Secretary having to do things maybe to, to put a bit of extra liquidity or to, to pad it out in the Treasury market. So uh, bank liquidity I don't think is an issue. We've had liquidity regimes. The you know, no. funding models are much, much more robust than they were in the financial crisis. I think part of what people are worried about and what they saw in the mm -hmm. gilt market was the liquidity in underlying trading, which is that these markets are not deep with, smaller bid with small bid offers in large sizes of trades as they used to be 15 years ago. And I think <clears throat> part of it, our banks are more prudent in managing their risk. That was new CEO, well, I guess year-old CEO uh, of Barclays, uh, joining Francine Lacroix. You can watch the full interview uh, on the Bloomberg. It's, it will also be airing on the TV this weekend, so definitely don't miss that. Really interesting. It's hard to see, though, how pension funds won't face new kind of rules and regulations. Also, looking at the liquidity uh, problem, you're also looking at different liquidity within the loan market and the credit market as well. There's a lot of money hanging around banks' books. they got to offload it, but liquidity can be tight. And we talk about this with Bruce Richards of Marathon Asset Management coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Um, as promised, uh, if you think you're going to get into a major default cycle, if you think we're going to hit a recession, perhaps the credit market is going to be the big payout for you. Major defaults potentially means major opportunities. At least that's one view from Bruce Richards. He's chairman and CEO of Marathon Asset Management, which is a $24 billion global credit manager that operates here in New York. So Guy and I talked to him for a good amount of time, and we started off talking about our question of the day, which was, does the Fed spook markets? Spook is um, appropriate given today's Halloween, but what I'd say is they're, they're probably not. Um, they're going to tell you they're going to continue to increase rates, but they're going to really focus on going forward being data dependent. And that's really key because inflation here in the States is starting to roll over. And after Wednesday's 75 basis point increase, I expect the Fed to increase and increase again, but to stop at four and a half percent. And that doesn't mean pivot. It means because I think inflation will be sticky around four to five percent. So when it rolls over from eight to ten and to six, it'll stay sticky all of next year. So I think the Fed will not pivot next year. And the markets are underestimating a couple things. Number one, the thought that they will pivot. And number two, 
be what yep. I believe is a lag and fed policy um, that um, will start to really affect the real economy beginning next year. Bruce, when you say pivot, you mean cut, right? You think the Fed's going to go up to I, four and a half and stay there and then not cut? Exactly. I don't think they. I don't think there's a Fed put. I don't think they reduce rates anytime next year. I think we stay at four and a half percent. And um, you know, we talked about housing earlier in your session today, and and the instantaneous impact to the housing market is mortgage rates have gone from three percent to seven percent. Uh, impacts housing in a very material way mm-hmm. as housing starts and housing sales have slowed down to a crawl and liquidity is next to not you know is, is relatively non-existent but what comes next is really a recession next year um, and I think a, a hit to corporate earnings and markets right now are expecting eight percent increase in earnings and we expect earnings uh, to probably decline by about five percent in 2023 oh wow okay so Bruce in that environment what does a default cycle potentially look like so first is going to, you know, it's, it's in steps. So first will be the hit to earnings. And as you know, you probably jump ahead, Alex, and, and, and talk about like that default cycle. First will be a hit to earnings and then there'll be the ratings downgrades. And in 2008, the great financial crisis, uh, we saw around 2000 downgrades of corporate credits. And we'll see, I think, a similar number if the Fed keeps rates at four and a half percent for next year, 2023, as we move into recession, as an earnings recession materializes. And, and so yield curve inverted, uh, corporate CEOs being as bearish as they are today, uh, all, you know, uh, indicates um, yep. um, this this downside, this, this downgrade cycle. So what's the answer? I believe about 200 defaults. I believe a cumulative default rate moving from less than one percent to around five or six percent but over time moving to a ten percent default rate cumulatively is what's in the cards so relative to history how would you describe that that period um and what are you doing to get ready for it well i I think a period like this really when you start the year in a zero interest rate policy environment um the first thing you do is is you prepare for it by moving to value so we're moving up from single single b's to double b's we're moving duration shorter um because the government's not buying a lot of debt these days through quantitative easing and they can be auctioning off a lot and there's incredible instability i think in the in the in the treasury markets around the globe whether you see that in japan or in europe or in UK, or more recently, what Yellen's talking about, the lack of liquidity in treasuries here. And, and so with that, we want to move into um, you know double Bs. We want to move shorter in duration. Um, and we're earning not 4.5% on our high-yield book, where, which is what it was earning in terms of its current yield and its yield of maturity coming into the year. But now that the Fed will have raised rates, we think 450 basis points, and we're towards the tail end of that, we're earning now 9% in our high yield book. Think about that for a second. You used to earn 4.5% and now you earn 9%. And in private credit loans that we're making, we're earning four to 500 basis points more in lending to companies versus where you started the year. So instead of like an 8%, it's now a 12% or 12.5% to a lot of these high yield companies uh, that are coming into the private credit markets. So whether it's the public credit markets, the liquid credit markets, or the private credit markets, it's been a flip. And the flip is at ZERP, it was hugely accretive for equities, 
hugely accretive for multiples, and multiples went to the moon. And now we flipped that, where multiples are coming back down, mm-hmm. and it's going to be a much tougher sled um, you know, for the equity market. Meanwhile, the bond investors are going to earn this enormous rate of return relative to history. Bruce Richards from Marathon, talking to Alex and myself a little bit earlier on. Alex, he's actually quite pumped for next year. I, it's been a long time coming. The equity guys have had it all their own way, basically, since the start of QE. But he thinks next year could be could be his year in some ways, um, because you are going to see a default cycle. You are going to see opportunities be thrown up. You are going to see creative destruction. And he has he sees an opportunity within that. Yields could get yields could get much, much higher from here, he thinks. And you could see some serious distress. So he was literally bouncing on his feet. So it it's worth going back if you can and check it out on the terminal because he's literally bouncing and looks like he's going to like pounce into the camera. That's how excited he actually was. Um, and I think that he phrased it perfectly a little bit later in the interview. He said, you know, the golden age of equities is over and the golden age of credit and loans is now about to begin. Like that to me sort of said it all. Of course, if we get a soft landing, that changes the calculus. Um, he also said that if the Fed overdoes it, hikes to 5% or something along those lines, the dollar gets too strong and then lots of things break. And then that becomes a whole different story. Yeah, he thinks we get to he thinks we get to four and a half percent. But the difference is that he then sees the Fed staying there. And mm-hmm. that's the big difference. Yes. Yes, it is. Um, but not causing the destruction <laughs> that we might see if it gets to five percent and then stays there. Um, anyway, it was a really great conversation. If you want yeah. to see a happy credit guy, that's the place you want to get to. Um I guess we have stuff coming up. I'm watching the ener- potential energy windfall tax. That's what I'm watching. Do we get that on the oil companies in the U.S.? I, all I will say is happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. Let this the trick-or-treating begin. <laughs>